Well, good morning. You guys uh, are the successful ones, have correctly set your clocks, got up on time, or maybe not, but uh, maybe you just didn't take a shower this morning, so (laughs) something in here is a little off, I don't know. Uh, It's great to have you this morning, and uh, I want to tell you too, if you're a visitor, um, later in the service, we're going to be taking an offering, and we would like you to give three times as much as everybody else. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We're going to have... uh, there's a zip strip on your bulletin, and we don't want you to feel obligated to give anything to the offering. If you're a guest this morning, we would really invite you to be our guest. Uh, but we, and I sounded a little like Beauty and the Beast just then, and I didn't mean to, but be our guest. Uh, and if you would, then just fill out that zip strip for us and let us know who you are and give us the honor and the privilege of giving us your name. Uh, that we would get to know you. Uh, so we'd invite you to do that. You can, you can start that process now. Uh, you, can, you can do it in really lengthy fashion while I'm preaching, if for some reason that's not touching uh, uh, your, what you need to hear this morning. So, uh, but I encourage you, invite you to do that, and I want to welcome you and, and uh, thank you for uh, coming to Bethel this morning. So would you bow with me and pray, and then we'll dive into the Word together. Our Father, we have uh, sung a lot this morning about how you stand with us in tough times, Uh, how you are a rock uh, that we can trust, that you stand beside us in the fire. We've sung also about uh, the difficulties even of this life and yet the beautiful contrast that will come with you when you return. And we long for that. And this morning, Lord, I'm struck even as we sing about we're waiting and we long for it to happen. And in one sense, the church has been waiting for 2,000 years. And so it seems like a long time. And yet, when you come, when you return, Lord Jesus, it will feel sudden. So may we be ready. I ask God that you would make us ready. That as we uh, study your word now, Lord, that it would have its way with us. That we would not be a people who are unprepared for the return of Jesus Christ. But that we would have things in order. We would have our relationship with Almighty God in order. That we would have trusted in Jesus as our Savior and learned what it means to be his follower and his disciple. That we would be ready for that return. And that it would not seem sudden, but sweet. Uh, Lord, guide us now as we study your word. Uh, We look forward to what you will say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be doing verses 13 through 28 this morning. And we're going to be finishing Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I didn't go back and count how many weeks we've been in it. A few. We've spent a little longer in the Sermon on the Mount than Jesus did originally, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, several years back now, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, an author, in fact, this, his book came out, as, I think his first real popular book came out in 2000. Uh, it was called The Tipping Point. Uh, maybe some of you read that or have heard of that. It was a fascinating book, and in this book, he described how Uh, He described the phenomenon where a particular item or a brand or a movement of some kind uh, approaches and then crosses this threshold of popularity. 
And so he kind of chronicled this and he charted how little things along the way can really uh, kind of really move something forward and accelerate its, its move towards popularity. And um, he, he kind of identified sort of the movement of certain things such as Cabbage, cabbage Patch Kids. Do you guys do you remember this, some of you? Do you remember there were brawls in department stores over the last Cabbage Patch doll for Christmas, you know? Uh, or the Rubik's Cube, of course. Or Vans sneakers. Uh, or even acid wash jeans. Where did that come from? Who started it and how did it become all the rage? And so he kind of looked at some of these phenomenon and traced how they went from an idea or a, a thing, a small-time thing, and then suddenly it crescendoed into some great popularity. And so, of course, you know, marketers and manufacturers have great fascination uh, in this kind of thing so they can boost their sales and profits. But it seems to me also that the church today can be similarly seen trying to market Christianity or market the gospel, or market discipleship in a way somehow attempting to make it cooler, uh, more accessible, less distinct from the culture around it, or softening what might feel like rough edges to people, all in an attempt to try to make, it, make the entrance to Christianity easier or more accommodating for people. And here we find at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount something that I think our culture, who is tempted to do these kinds of things, really needs to hear, something we need to learn. It was relevant to the church in the day it was preached, and it is absolutely relevant to us today. And it's the first point in your handout this morning, and that's this. Christian discipleship is not a popular movement. Christian discipleship is not a popular movement. Verse 13, Jesus announces, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So here we have some somewhat sobering words from Jesus as he kind of draws to the conclusion of his sermon. And I just want to remind you of what he's already preached to us. Jesus has announced the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And to that end, for those who find themselves through repentance and through faith, they have entered into this kingdom of God, he announces to them, you're blessed. You're blessed because of your position in the kingdom of God, regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in. So whether you're poor in spirit, pure in heart, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, persecuted or whatnot, you're blessed because you're in the kingdom of God. And there's a blessing here on this earth, and there's an even greater blessing yet to come. He went on and talked about obedience to the law, that in his coming he did not soften or remove or do away with the law, but rather he upheld its virtue and its goodness, but he taught that it was to be a matter of obedience from the inside out, obedience from the heart, not just the wooden legalistic obedience of the Pharisees, but from people who were really changed at a heart level by the work of the Holy Spirit, obedience from the inside out. He talked about ways that we could facilitate this transformation of our heart in terms of how we handle our possessions, where our treasure is, and 
the secrecy of our good deeds, doing good deeds, but not for the eye of man, but rather for the eye of the Lord, and that we would let our Father, who sees what is done in secret, that he would reward us. And then finally, he taught about the relationships, all of our relationships that are impacted by living in the kingdom of God, our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Last week, we looked at this vertical dimension of relationships and the horizontal, and we learned that we don't love God alone. We love God, and we, one of the ways that we go about loving God is by loving others, and that those two are inextricably linked. Now, having said all of that and describing life in the kingdom of God, and that's what we've been looking at these past many weeks, now he closes his sermon by telling us this sobering news, that the majority of people will not genuinely respond to this gospel invitation of entrance into the kingdom of God. The majority of people will not respond. Do you know this? I, I, I hope I'm not telling you something new here. The reality is that many may come to church. Many may make a profession of faith. Many may claim the name Christian whenever they're filling out a survey card or something of that sort. But most will not become true disciples Jesus. Disciple being a follower, uh, like an apprentice, a student, one who imitates one who is their teacher. Most will not do that. And so what we're taught is that Christianity is a minority movement. And one way I could just simply illustrate this to you today is this. How often have you heard the invitation to simply pray a prayer to enter into a relationship with Christ. In contrast with an invitation to enter into the kingdom of God through a life patterned by discipleship. We tend to set the bar really low. Yes, prayer is the way in. We communicate with God. We express our our repentance and our trust in him. It is the way in. But oftentimes we soft sell what it means to be a follower of Jesus as though it were just a prayer and just a momentary profession and not a commitment to a life of discipleship. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote profoundly on this idea in his masterful work called The Cost of Discipleship. I have this copy. Um, This is obviously an old one, and I love this one. You know, you find these old copies. I actually got this uh, when I was in college. Uh, My sophomore year in college, I think it was, and began to read it. It took me about two years to read this book because it was hard. And actually, he, he goes through the Sermon on the Mount in this book. So if you've read it before and it's been a while, or you've heard it, or you really want to sound smart because the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer sounds like something, you know what I mean? Uh, I would encourage, highly encourage picking up um, this book. And as he's kind of working through and examining uh, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the, one of the very memorable lines that he writes in his book, even towards the beginning, is this. Just, just contrast this, this line that I'm about to read to you with what you often hear about the invitation to coming to Christ. Here's the line. When Christ bids a man, he bids him come die. It's just a little different than the invitation we hear today. Can I say that? When Christ bids a man and calls him to himself, 
He's calling that man to die to himself. And this is the way into the kingdom of God. It is through confession. It is through repentance. It is through faith. Not just a faith that, but a faith in that entrusts oneself to a way of life and to one who died for us. It is a death to self. This is what the true discipleship, the disciple of Jesus will experience. That we will no longer be living for our own personal interests. But our life is now hidden with Christ in God. As the Apostle Paul says it in Colossians. Listen to these words, Colossians 3, 1 through 6. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated. At the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so this is what Jesus is announcing. This news that he is announcing at the end of his sermon, after he has talked to his, primarily his disciples and the crowd around him about life in the kingdom of God, he announces that this, this discipleship, this invitation to this way of life, this isn't popular. And so knowing this, hearing this, is kind of a good news, bad news thing for us, isn't it? On the one hand, it's hard to hear, because it would be nice if it was easier. I like easy. I really like easy. I suspect you do as well. Uh, and yet it's good that we know this. It's good that we hear this so that we don't have false expectations about our faith or about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or that somehow we might grow to be ashamed of the Christian faith because it seems like it's underperforming in the world. Jesus said this would be the case. This is interesting, at least to me. There's a lot of discussion today uh, about what's happening in the church in terms of statistics. There was a, a survey that came out by uh, the Pew Research Forum here back in 2015. And uh, statistically what they announced was that there was a serious decline in the, in the numbers of uh, Americans professing to be Christians. In two, from 2007 to 2014, there was a decline of 7%. Seven years, 7%. I'll do the math. This is 1% per year. That's the best math I've got this morning. Uh, but when this study came out, uh, a lot of people really reacted to it. Many people began to predict this is the end of Christianity uh, in North America. Um, they began to predict that we would become primarily a secular uh, nation, much like uh, Europe, and that's all very possible. Um, however, it's actually interesting when you read the data a little more carefully, what you find is that Christianity itself is not on decline, but what we might call nominal Christianity is on decline. And uh, there's a great uh, researcher named Ed Stetzer who has kind of helped to interpret this study. And here is his quote that I found really helpful in understanding this study. It says this. <coughs> he says, for example, the cultural cost of calling yourself Christian is starting to outweigh 
the cultural benefit. So those who do not identify as Christian according to their convictions are starting to identify as, the word is nuns, not nuns with the habit, but uh, nuns, no religious affiliation, because it's more culturally savvy. So in other words, what's happening is they're finding that for those who may be claimed to be Christian for years because that was culturally acceptable, there was some, some sort of um, respect accorded to one who might claim to be Christian, that in the past seven years, that has fallen off. That has fallen off. Uh, and so, and I would quite simply say in response to this, uh, according to Jesus, this is to be expected. This is the way of it. Um, small is the gate. Narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Uh, I would also say this. Uh, what, we're, what we're experiencing nationally, this 7% falling off in seven years who no longer claim to be Christians, uh, who maybe once were, uh, I would say, and I don't mean this to sound cold, but this is good. This is a distillation, a distilling and a pruning uh, of that which those who really belong to the Lord and those who do not. And that is going to be the way forward. I believe in our own nation and, and internationally, it will quite frankly become more and more costly to follow Jesus. And this is the way that Jesus predicted Small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life. Uh, interestingly here, the Greek word that's used for narrow gate, it comes from the verb phlebo, and it actually means trouble or difficulty or, or pressure. That's where it comes from, this narrowest, this constricting, confining, you kind of get the, the idea, the concept, it's this this difficulty that's pressed down. When I was reading this uh, this past week, thinking about you know the small gate and the narrow road in contrast to you know big gate, wide road, I couldn't help but to go back to my childhood. I grew up in Southern California in the high desert, Apple Valley, and um, Apple Valley is just off of Highway 15, which connects Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And on a Friday night. You could, uh, from my front yard, you could look out off into the distance because there's no trees or anything nice to look out. It was just desert. Uh, it was a tough upbringing. And uh, so you could just look out over the distance and you could see the freeway going up over the pass uh, into the, towards Vegas. And on a Friday night, the road was red. Taillights. And on a Sunday night, the road was white. Headlights. And so the freeway would change colors. And I was just, for whatever reason, that just came to mind. When I think of big gate, wide road, that leads to destruction, that's what I think of. There's just this, in fact, when you go into Vegas, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever uh, I'm sure you were just passing through. So we'll just, <laughs> if you ever were just passing through Las Vegas, when you land, there is a heaviness, I feel, when I'm there. There is the sadness of people giving their life away, right? One hand of cards at a time, one roll of the dice at a time, one pull of the lever at a time. 
there is this sadness, and they think they are living it up. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to life. This is what Jesus is talking about here. So while this may not be initially comforting, you might be sitting here going, wow, this is a real (laughs) pick-me-up. We need to know this. It's good to know this. In fact, Jesus assures us in John 16, 33, he says, I have told you these things, and they were a similar message to what we're finding here, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I want to read to you this quote just to whet your appetite for Bonhoeffer. Uh, Maybe Barnes & Noble will have a run on books here. That'd be great. He talks about cheap grace. And I just want you to hear a little bit of this. Cheap grace is preaching, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell, for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out his own eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Good words from a man who knew what discipleship was about. So here's the realities I want to distill from this first point here. Jesus wasn't starting a popular movement. He wasn't inviting us to earthly prosperity. True Christianity will always be countercultural. True Christianity will always involve self-sacrifice. Genuine disciples of Jesus will be the minority. Jesus says, few will find it. Few. The second point we find is maybe seemingly different here, or kind of taking us further on into Jesus' teaching. The Christian church has imposters within it. Imposters. Did you know this? Verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And here we move on to the scariest verse in all of the scriptures. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Uh, a couple of years ago, actually a number of years ago, I always start with that word, a couple of years ago, and oftentimes it's more like 10 or more. <coughs> a while back, uh, a friend was moving out of the state, and he was an avid hunter. And so he left me some of his hunting supplies. By the way, if you should ever be inclined, if you're leaving the state and you have hunting supplies, I can provide a good home. I'm just, just throw that out there. But he left me something that I had never seen before or thought that I would ever utilize. But he left me this big Ziploc bag, and inside there was this white, what looked like a paint suit. It's just this, this white, funny-looking suit that you just zip on. It's real thin and there's hardly anything to it. And I had to ask him. I was a little bit ashamed. I was like, did, did you mean to give me your, you know, your paint suit here or what, what is this? And he said, oh, Eric, he says, this is, we call this a set of whites. And what this is, is when you're sheep hunting, you put this white suit on, you zip it all the way up. And then when you're hunting, you don't have to just be up in the crags far off, but you can actually get down on your hands and knees and move right in to the group of sheep. And they will allow you, if you carefully move towards them, they will allow you to sort of move right in among them. And from there, you can get a pretty good shot, I'm told. I haven't done this yet. The whites are still in the Ziploc bag in my locker at home. And, uh, and I was thinking about that, and I was like, that is exactly the picture that Jesus gives to us here. A predator who can cloak themselves well and move right in and take advantage of those who are unsuspecting. And Jesus would not allow us to be unsuspecting. In fact, he cautions us here that there are predators in disguise, people who are in the church for their own selfish interests. And sometimes they're in leadership. They can be pastors. They can be preachers. They can be ambitious leaders. They can be so-called evangelists uh, or so-called healers or any number of other things. And I don't think I need to provide a list of examples of some of those that we've seen because you know the names probably as well or better than I do. There have been numerous impostors and charlatans in the church such that I think the outside world has difficulty believing the credibility of the church today. In fact, if there's a reason for the 7% decline in the last seven years... I think it was, it's even those who might be friendly to the church who are disgusted with, with what they see, with so many phonies. Um, in fact, just think about the last time you were watching, if you ever watched like a murder mystery type of a movie or something like this. If there is a pastor or a priest or a Christian in the movie, I guarantee you they're the killer. I don't mean, I'll just spoil all of them for you. We're not portrayed well in the media or in movies, or we're just not. Um, so, you know, ruined every mystery for you here. Um, but we are told by Jesus that these imposters are present, and we're told explicitly how we are to spot them and to deal with them. We're told, in fact, that we are to test. We're to test for them. Uh, and the, that the metric or the test that we're given to evaluate whether one is genuine or legitimate or not is to evaluate their life. 
and to make judgments about their authenticity. And we talked about this a little bit last week. And so Jesus here gives us a particular way that we go, we go about testing them. And it sounds funny. It almost sounds like we're on a witch hunt, right? If you, if you take this person, you put them in the water, and they float, then <laughs> they're a witch or, you know, whatever. <coughs> Jesus provides, uh, the test that he provides is a lot more practical. He simply says, look at their life. Look at the, look at the fruit of their life. What is happening in their everyday discipleship? Is there a discipleship in everyday life? Or do you see something different? This is the test. And so we, we are meant to ask the question of those who would profess to be Christians, what kind of person are they? Are they contentious? Are they duplicitous? Are they greedy? Are they liars? Are they immoral? Or are they themselves, what does their everyday discipleship look like? Are they obedient to Jesus and obedient to the scriptures? And, if, and you'll notice here as Jesus goes on in his teachings, he'll tell us specifically that it's not the presence of sensational activity that is the fruit that one is the Lord's or is a prophet of the Lord or something of this nature. He'll even tell us that signs and wonders are not to be trusted because they can come from any kind of power. There are other powers that produce signs and wonders in this world. And Jesus says, that's not the test. And I would tell you, this is really important today, especially because there are movements afoot, and one of them I'll name is called the NAR, or New Apostolic Reformation. And it is a group of people who claim to and profess to be followers of Jesus, but they also claim that there are modern-day prophets and apostles who speak with the authority of Scripture, and very often contradict scripture. And one of the ways they authenticate themselves to the masses is they claim that there are signs and wonders and miracles and phenomenon. And I want to tell you, Jesus says, that's not the test. That's not how we test them. That's not how we evaluate them. Do they live lives of obedient discipleship to Jesus? This is the test. Uh, In fact, There are some positive things that we're quite frankly going to look, look for. Is there true, genuine love in this person for God and for man? Is there humility? If we're just looking at the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, are there good deeds done quietly for the praise of God, or are they done outwardly for the eye of man? Where's their treasure? Are they amassing their resources for earth? Were they investing it in the kingdom of God? Um, and so these are the, this is the test that Jesus gives primarily for determining whether one is a prophet or whether one is of the Lord. Uh, what does their everyday discipleship look, by, look like? I've given in your handout, too, there are, in fact, three kinds of tests that we, that we can use to evaluate one's authenticity. And I have to give credit for this here because I'm taking this from a book that was written by one of our very own, Holly Pivik, who wrote with Doug Guyvett uh, specifically about this movement that I have mentioned to you. And one of the things uh, that the authors identified in the book, which is such a helpful tool, is they help us to look at what Scripture points out in terms of tests that we use to evaluate whether someone who claims to speak for the Lord is in fact doing so. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, and I'll caution you right now, a lot of times somebody will come up to me and they will say, God told me. 
man, I want to tell you, I just like, I don't want to get too close. The lightning might, you know. Can I just say that's a really big claim? In almost 20 years of ministry, I have never claimed that God told me such and such. I'm willing to say that upon reading the scriptures, that God impressed upon me, or I feel this way, but I'm open-handed because I might be wrong. But if I declare God told me, there's some ramifications for that in scripture. Making that statement saying, I'm speaking for the Lord. And you know what? The Lord is never wrong and he does not lie. Some of the tests that we find in the scriptures in Deuteronomy 18, it says that one who claims to speak for the Lord, a prophet who claims to speak for the Lord, that it must come true. And do you know what the ramifications are if it doesn't? You're supposed to kill him. Another one in Deuteronomy 13, it's, it's, it's uh, the test of orthodoxy. In other words, is what, what they say, is it consistent with the teachings of the faith? If it's contradictory, once again, they haven't spoken for the Lord. And you know what, again, the consequence is? Yeah, we're supposed to take their life. I don't know any church that's ever done that. And let's just leave that alone for right now. But. And Jesus provides another test for us here, which is lifestyle. So if someone is claiming to speak for the Lord, it must come true. It must be orthodox. It must be consistent with the teachings of the church. And it must come from a lifestyle that is, gives evidence that one really belongs to the Lord. 1 John 4, 1 says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is, a, is from God. And so this is another one. of This, this fits into the orthodoxy test here. Um, also, I think it's interesting here, and I'm just going to probably start the wheels turning in your mind on this one without giving you conclusion. Uh, don't you love it when the pastor does that? But It's interesting to me here, too, that not every person is presented in this passage, every, not every person who is presented in this passage as a false prophet is a wolf in sheep's clothing. In, in other words, it seems to me that by this passage that there are some who are self-deceived, who really think they are something that they are not. And I, that is what I think is scary, terrifying in this passage. Right? Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. This is the everyday discipleship test. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And your name perform miracles? Now, if you saw that happen, wouldn't you think, wow, we got a real spiritual person here? I mean, that would give you, that would sort of get your attention. But Jesus says provocatively, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, the evildoers. And so the scary thing here is that there are some who are self-deceived. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we're cautioned by the Apostle Paul, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So here we're looking at this passage and we may be you know, tempted to think, wow, this is, okay, here we've got the test for other people, for other people, for other people. But the Apostle Paul would say, 
Examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. See if you're a person who is an everyday disciple. Or did you just check a box, pray a prayer, and have never moved towards the Lord since? Everyday discipleship is the evidence that we are really his. So we move to this third point here. Uh, Discipleship has been presented as something that involves great cost, involving personal sacrifice, daily commitment. And we're shown here at the very end of this uh, passage that discipleship is costly, but non-discipleship is even costlier. And I got to tell you that last word there, costlier, I keep looking at that going, that doesn't look right. It doesn't look like a real word. It looks like funner or something like that. It's a real word. So I double-checked. Verse 24. Then everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Okay, now, the Arctic Amplified Translation of the Scriptures which doesn't exist except in my mind, uh, I think would translate this passage a little differently. Uh, Maybe it wouldn't be so much the house built upon the sand, but of course it would be permafrost, right? I think if Jesus were were, uh, not preaching from a Galilean hillside above you know, above the sea here, but in fact was up on Esther Dome and uh, was preaching to Fairbanksons and was looking out over the Tanana Valley, he might say something like, the house built upon permafrost, right, will fall with a great crash. Those who hear the words of mine and build on solid foundation with drill logs to prove it, good job. The one who does, doesn't heed these words of mine and puts on a radiant heat slab right on top of permafrost, you know, is the other guy. And you cannot go home today from here without seeing an example of it, okay? This is where we are. Jesus would have us understand again that real life, that everyday life, has a way of testing our foundations. I know you know this to be true. Everyday life will test where your security is and what your faith is in. And what is holding you up? And how firm your foundation? Uh, your job will be threatened. It'll happen. Whether through performance or injustice or budget cuts, that will happen. Your friends will move away, especially in Fairbanks, Alaska. The stock market will eventually, although soaring now, give back its yields. Or take back its yields, I should say. Your PFD will be halved. Your marriage will go through strain. And you should go to Pastor Keith's Sunday school class after this. Your health will struggle. Your finances will be thin. Your kids will rebel. 
the check engine light will come on in your car, especially if it's a Chrysler. (laughs) Tell me I'm wrong. I had a Chrysler once. Uh, but this is, this is the stuff of life, and we all face it, and it absolutely tests our foundations. The winds blow, the storms come, the rains fall, and they test what it is that we're hoping in and what we trust. And the picture that Jesus paints is that you can imagine two structures built side by side. They can look relatively the same until the testing comes, and when the testing comes, the authenticity and the integrity of one will be shown And the falseness of the other will also be shown, which is exactly why it is everyday discipleship, which is the test that Jesus says we're to look to, to see if one really belongs to the Lord. And so as Jesus is concluding his sermon here, and we've looked at this all the way from chapter 5 to chapter 7, he wants us to know this, that living as his disciples in the kingdom of God is beneficial For this life and the life to come, but for the life that we have been given here on earth, it's going to be costly. Discipleship isn't popular, it's costly. However, we find that non-discipleship is even costlier. Dallas Willard has said it this way. This is so good. Please listen carefully to this. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace. A life penetrated throughout by love. Faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. Hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. As we seek to follow the living God, let us not forget that it is worth the effort. Remember the words of Jesus when he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And so you can see, though discipleship costs much, non-discipleship is costlier. And costly discipleship, the small gate and the narrow road leads to what? Life. Life in the here and now, true life, and life to come. So let me ask you some questions in closing here. What is the foundation of your life? When the testing comes, what will be revealed? Those who would follow Jesus have not chosen a popular movement. Those who would follow Jesus have not chosen a prosperity movement. Those who would be followers of Jesus have not chosen the wide gate or the easy path. Small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life. Let's pray. Our Lord, frequently we find in the scriptures a teaching of yours that actually wasn't meant to win the masses, but oftentimes meant to repel them. You weren't looking for the lowest common denominator, You weren't looking for easy believers. Lord, you were looking for those who were willing to pay the cost and to truly be your disciples. We see this in the scriptures. God, I pray that we would test ourselves to see whether we are truly in the faith. 
Would we look at our everyday life to see whether it is a discipleship of obedience and imitation to our Lord or something other? And God, as we look to interact with those around us and as we look to be led and to be taught and to be influenced by others, may we also test them because you tell us to. May we provide a test to them of everyday discipleship and see whether they walk the walk or whether they're just talking something. Lord, thank you for your great teaching, which amazes, which is profound. And I pray that those who are here this morning, Lord, would choose the narrow gate, the narrow path, and then in doing so, they would find life. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.